turn, if you will, then to our text this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, what Paul does in our text this morning is not unlike what he has done elsewhere. As we will see here, Paul sets forth before the eyes of the saints the example of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, in the preceding verses, has called the saints to strive together for the faith of the Gospel. And recall, he says, they can do this because they have unity. We said unity is unity of mind. Unity of heart, striving for the same cause, having the same goal, having the same spirit, serving the same Christ. And this unity can abound. Why? Because Paul says, of humility. They have humility. And what was humility, Paul says? That is counting others more significant than yourself. Looking not only to your own interests, but looking to the interests of others. And yet, why are we called to be humble? Is it because being humble is the nice thing to do? Are we called to be humble because Paul wants us to be virtuous for virtue's sake? No. We are called to be humble because of who their Savior is. You see, humility for the saints finds its true meaning in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul wishes to set before them the example of humility in the humiliation of Jesus Christ. As I said before, this is not unlike what Paul has done prior by setting an example of Christ before the saints. And we can briefly look at one other example. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 1 through 9. Paul says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they have gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he shall complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love 
is also genuine. And here it is. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. You see, Paul says, Christ was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. Christ is set before their eyes as an example of giving. Paul is saying, you have been blessed by God. So he's saying this to stir up generosity within them that they might give to their brothers and sisters in need because Christ did. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. He says this, For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten and endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to you this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He's saying suffering for righteousness' sake can be expected. Look, Christ your Savior suffered for you. Not only did He suffer for you, but He, he did not even repay evil for evil. And follow after this example. Christ suffered, so you must suffer. And yet, Christ was sinless. Think about that next time you want to complain about suffering. And so, what Peter does is he sets suffering in the right perspective by pointing the saints to Christ. We can only understand suffering or humility by understanding it in light of Christ's suffering and humility. And so this is what Paul's doing here in our text in verses 5 through 8. He tells the saints, show humility one to another. And you want to know how to do this, he says? I'll show you the greatest example of humility. Let's look to Christ. For Christ gives us the perfect example of humility. And yet we cannot even demonstrate humility in the exact same way Christ did. Just as we cannot suffer in the same way that Christ did. For Christ did this as the God-man. He did this redemptively. He did it voluntarily. He did it veiling His glory. By becoming lowly. We can't imitate that. We can't reproduce that. But what we can do is conform ourselves to that pattern to that example which we are given. Because we are recipients of that grace. Because we are those who are in Christ Jesus. But then the question becomes, who is Christ Jesus? Who is the one that you are in? As there are many variant views of Christ we're all aware of. Was Jesus just a good moral teacher? Was Jesus uh, just human? Was Jesus only divine? and just had an appearance of a body, but it wasn't a real body. Well, Paul in our text today is going to lay before us who Christ is and what He has done. And as he does that, he swings the proverbial axe against all those false representations of Jesus Christ. And so, this will be our first point of the morning. Who is Christ as described by the Apostle Paul? Our second point then is, what is true humility? And our third point will be uh, what this means for us. What this means for us. What, where this leaves us. So who is Christ? What is humility? Where this leaves us. So who is Christ? Well, throughout history, been a, a variety of views. And even in the, with the best of intentions, people have tried to protect Christ by reformulating uh, the orthodox doctrine of who the person and work of Christ is. And yet, in doing so, what they have done is they have taken away 
something that makes him the God-man that Paul describes. A couple example of examples. And Nicaea. If you recall, Arius denies uh, the deity of Christ. He says, if, if God is one, well then the Son can't be God. He certainly can't be co-eternal with the Father. He must have had a beginning. At Chalcedon, Nestorius would argue that two, nature, or two, pers- two natures implies two persons. Or, you, or Eutyches would argue the opposite, that Christ's two natures are really just one nature. And we can go on and on and on with these divergent views. But Paul in verse 6, after beginning by telling the saints to have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, goes on to speak of the pre-existent Son. As he says, who in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so you might ask, well, what does it mean to be in the form of God? Well, thankfully for us, we have the answer within this very text. Look at verse 7, where Paul says that Christ took the form of a servant. I think we all can agree what that means. Taking the form of a servant meant what? He was a servant. right? Taking the form of a servant meant he was a servant. So he was man by nature. And nature being those characteristics, those essential qualities that make something what it is. Okay? That makes something what it is. And so, if being in the form of a servant meant that Christ was a servant, man by nature, then what does that mean for us, what it means to be in the form of God? To be in the form of God then means that He was God. That He was God by nature. Right? You can't have a form of a servant means that he's a servant man by nature and not have being in the form of God is being God, God by nature. You see? B.B. Warfield describes form as being that body of qualities which distinguish him from all other spiritual beings, which constitute him God, and without he would not be God. See, he had all the qualities that God had, and without having them he would not be God. So he who was in the form of God was God. Just like one who is in the form of an angel is an angel, one who is in the form of a dog is a dog. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is describing to us the pre-existent Christ as God. And as God, He was co-equal with the Father. This is why Paul says in verse 6 that He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or another way to say it, that in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Both our translations are saying the same thing. They're both saying Christ was equal with God. I mean, if, if he wasn't, what's the point in saying that equality wasn't something to be grasped? And grasped meaning snatched or plundered or a, a, like a spoil taken. Which is why it can be said that it wasn't robbery. It wasn't something that Christ took. It was His already by nature. Equality was His. And so Paul describes to us the pre-existent Christ who being God was co-eternal with the Father. Yet this is not all that Paul describes. While remaining God, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. He didn't stop being God. He took upon Himself human nature. The one who was God by nature didn't change, 
but took upon Himself the form of a servant. He came in the likeness of men, Paul says. So it wasn't just an appearance of man. He didn't just look like a man, but really wasn't. No, He was a man. He took a body, a real body, and yet was still in the form of God. Right? Here Paul describes to us the God-man. Two natures in the one person of Christ. Our confession of faith echoes this very same truth in chapter 8 on Christ the Mediator. It says this, so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ. And yet, in the context of our passage, why is this important? Why is this important? Because Paul wishes to show before the eyes of the saints the extent that Christ went for them. Putting before them their eyes the extent for which Christ, their Savior, went for them. For their salvation, for the sake of the church, for its unity, for its peace. Giving them the supreme example of humility. And so then this takes us to point two. What is humility? Well, Paul points out, as we said, Christ emptied Himself. So this must have something to do with humility. But what? Well, there are those in the 19th and 20th century, and there are still those today, who hold to what is called canoticism. You've maybe all heard of the, uh, this canotic theory. And those who hold to this uh, canotic theory, which gets its name from the Greek word kenosis, which means emptying, Uh, those in evangelicalism today who would hold to the canonic theory would say that in the incarnation that this emptying of Christ wasn't just a a veiling of His glory, but it was actually giving up divine attributes. So that when you read that uh, Jesus grew or He learned, uh, we hear of uh, uh, human limitations placed on Jesus in the Scriptures, this is how it makes sense to them. Well, He must have given up His divine attributes in order to do that. But is this what Paul's teaching here? How does Paul describe the emptying? Look at verse 7. He emptied emptied himself by what? Was it by giving up his divinity? Is that what Paul says? Does he say by divesting himself of his divine attributes? No. He emptied himself by taking on something. By taking on the form of a servant. This emptying was a taking on of human nature, not a emptying himself of the divine nature. And this is what the church has confessed throughout history. Yet we must ask ourselves then, how does this show humility? Well, first we see that this emptying was done voluntarily by Christ. This emptying was done voluntarily. No one forced him or coerced him into doing it. Because if it wasn't a voluntary act, then it wouldn't be a true example of humility. It wouldn't be a true example of humility. And then what sense would it make for Paul to say, hey, follow after this example of Christ if it wasn't even his choice to do? This is why this displays true humility. Because Christ didn't have to do it. Christ didn't have to do it. But He did it for the glory of God and because He loved the saints. That's why He did it. You see, brothers and sisters, to demonstrate true humility, it must be done with the right ends in view. 
It must be done with the right ends in view. If you do it to be seen by man, if you do it because you feel external pressure by your peers, this is not commendable virtue in the eyes of God. True virtue is exercised for the right ends as Christ has demonstrated for us. That in all we do is for the glory of God and for one another. Not just ourselves. We don't do things just for ourselves. That's why we look into the interest of our of one another. Because we have to ask ourselves, what did Christ gain from this? What did Christ gain by doing this? He didn't take on humanity. He didn't obey the law. He didn't suffer and die for Himself. No, He did it for you and I, for our benefit, for our good. And so Paul's saying, see that we have this same mind as Christ does. That we are looking out not only for ourselves, but for the sake of one another. This is that example He's putting before our eyes. And think about this as well. What sense does what Paul's saying make for those who would deny Christ's divinity? The whole reason he's pointing the saints to Christ is because this is a true picture of humility because Christ was truly God. He was very God of very God in heaven, in all splendor, glory, and majesty. And He came down and He took upon Himself humanity. This is why it is the greatest demonstration of humility. This understanding alone causes this text to make sense. This understanding alone is the only reason that it has any force for the Christian. And what Paul is describing here in the text for us is what has been called the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ begins at the incarnation until the resurrection. And so here Paul speaks of the incarnation as he says that Christ took the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men. That Christ became man was a part of His humiliation. As you see, the distance between Creator and creature is so grand, it's so vast, that chasm is so big. And yet Christ came down and took upon Himself the likeness of sinful humanity. Yet no sin was found in Him. And so this means that Christ also, in taking upon this flesh, went through a natural birth. Went through a natural birth through his mother Mary, which the Puritan uh, Thomas Watson in his Body of Divinity calls infinite humility. And this is what he says. Listen. Christ taking on our flesh was one of the lowest steps of his humiliation. He humbled himself more in lying in the virgin's womb than in hanging upon the cross. Thomas Watson says he humbled himself more in lying in the virgin's womb than in hanging upon the cross. Can you understand why he would say something like that? You understand that? Humility's greatest expression is found in the Son of God coming down, taking on human flesh. Because not only was he made flesh, but he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh being one who no sin was found in. And so, Thomas Watson certainly isn't saying that a great act of humility didn't occur on the cross, but what he's saying is that when one takes on flesh, when one is born naturally through the mother's womb, death is certain to us. Death is certain to all who are flesh. And so, in a sense, the death of Christ, you can understand once He takes on flesh that He must die. But what we can't fathom is the humility it took 
for the Son of God to come down and take upon Himself the likeness of sinful flesh to begin with. That's unfathomable to Thomas Watson. That's what he's saying. And as man, Christ experienced in sinful flesh that He took upon Himself all that we experience, yet knowing no sin. He experienced uh, growing up. He learned. He experienced hunger and thirst. He had sorrow and He wept. Yet, His humility that He put on display was also shown in the fact that in His humanity, He became subject to the will of the Father. The Son of God, in His humanity, became subject to the will of the Father. He humbled Himself. Willingly. This is what it means to take the form of a servant. He didn't come and subject Himself to the will of man but He came and subjected Himself to the will of the Father. This is what Jesus says in John 6.38. For I have come down from heaven not to do My own will, but to do the will of Him who sent Me. And so, brothers and sisters, let this teach us that if any pride still resides in us, to cast it far away. That in hearing about the humility of Christ, how can we yet still remain proud sinners? It ought to be impossible. But yet still, pride remains in each of our hearts. And so we must continue to conform ourselves to the image of Christ. This is what Paul's telling the saints. He's saying, have this mind in yourselves which is in Christ. Then he gives them the example of Christ saying, be conformed to this image. Put on humility. Cast off all pride. For God hates pride. You know why God hates pride? Because it fails to recognize and acknowledge God. Those who are prideful say, my wealth, my intelligence, my beauty comes from myself. Those who demonstrate humility say, whatever wealth, whatever uh, uh, intelligence I have, whatever beauty I have comes from God. It comes from God. And so let us show ourselves humble servants of God. Yet what else consisted of Christ's humiliation which Paul describes? What else consisted in this humiliation? Well, if you look at verse 8, Paul says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, Christ in His priestly office provided satisfaction for us in His life and in His death. 17th century Reformed theologian Johannes Wolebius says, of Christ's satisfaction. It is that act by which He freed us from the curse and restored eternal life to us by being subject to the law in our place, undergoing the curse due our sins, and perfectly performing what was required for us by the law. Perfect righteousness, bearing our sins, that's what it means. That's what He's saying. This has been for centuries, within the Reformed circles, called the active and the passive obedience of Christ. They are different ways, they are ways to describe different aspects of the whole life of obedience of Christ. And so they are not temporally separated. Sometimes you may have heard people describe it, it seems like they separate it. Like Christ. Uh, active obedience was him living under the law and then it stops and then his passive obedience is him dying on the cross. But this is not the case. 
both the passive and the active obedience of Christ extend over the entirety of his life. And so first, let's look at the bearing of our punishment. For yes, as Paul says, it was done as he hung upon that cross. But this is not the only place he bore our punishment. For the cross is the culmination, it's the climax, it's the pinnacle of the suffering. But it's not the only place that he bore our punishment. We read in the Passion Narratives in John 19, verse 1, that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Or recall in the Mount of Olives, Luke 22:42, as Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there he appeared to him an angel from heaven who strengthened him. And being in agony, he prayed even more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so the former example being the external sufferings of Christ, the latter example being the internal sufferings of Christ. We can even point to Christ early in his ministry being taken to the wilderness by Satan. But these examples paint the picture of what I'm trying to say. Right? Christ, in the person of Christ, the Son of God, suffered for us. The Son of God, in the person of Christ, suffered for us. Not in His divinity, but in His humanity. God cannot suffer. But Christ, in His humanity, suffered for us. This is a part of His humiliation. This is a part of that passive obedience. Yet, what Paul also speaks of is Christ being obedient unto the point of death, which highlights Christ living under the law, perfectly obeying it, so that His righteousness might be imputed to you and I. For you see, it wasn't enough for Christ just to die on the cross. It wasn't enough just for Him to die on the cross. He likewise had to live a perfect life so that we may live. Deuteronomy chapter 7, 27, verse 26 says this, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. And so we were all cursed. For none of us could perform the works of the law. We needed one who could. And that was Christ. That is what He has done. And so here in this example given to us by Paul, we see the supreme example of humility. Christ did it for us. He was put under the law in His humanity for our sake. He took upon Himself flesh. He suffered and died in our place. Christ was willing to regard Himself as nothing so that we may live. This is humility. This is why Paul gives us this example. And yet remember also that the cross was a humiliating thing. The cross was a degrading thing. The Romans would never execute a Roman citizen in that manner. Never would they do that. And so Christ died in the very worst manner possible as viewed by all of society, by viewed for, by His peers. And He did it for our sake, for yours and mine. What indescribable humility this puts on display for us. And so don't think that you can mimic that. You can't. That satisfied God's wrath. That was redemptive. That procured our eternal life. But what it also does in view 
as we view this as saints, is it should motivate us to humble ourselves. Viewing what Christ did on our behalf, this humiliation, seeing it before our eyes, should cause us to humble ourselves. To, like Christ, put one another's interests above our own. To look to the interests of our others, not just ourselves. To consider the good and the advantage of our neighbor. Viewing this should cause us to love God greater and and thus love one another more as we see the image of Christ within each one of us. And so this remains then for us is where does this leave us? After saying all of this, where does this leave you and I? Well, this leads then to our third and final point of the day. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so how are you and I made righteous? Well, later in Philippians chapter 3, Paul will tell us that we are made righteous by faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And that faith is in that righteousness given to us is an alien righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. And that doesn't mean those weird looking guys in the UFOs. When I say alien righteousness, what I mean is it's foreign from us. It's not found within us. It comes from outside of ourselves. It comes from Christ. Okay? It comes from Christ. And so only then can we, the church, have the same mind? Only then can we share in the same love? Only then can we count others more significant than ourselves? Only then, as a church, can we have this unity and this peace and show this humility? Only when we are in Christ. Only when we view Christ correctly and rightly can we demonstrate this. We are not humble because humility is in vogue. We are humble because Christ our Savior was. And so then out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, out of desire to be conformed to the image of His Son, we strive after humility before God and before one another. And so if you sit here today and you say to yourself, I'm humble, I show humility. If you're not a Christian, you're not humble and you cannot show humility. Paul says in verse 5, look back there once again, verse 5, have this same mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, only those in Christ experience His saving power. Only those in Christ experience His saving benefits. And so only those in Christ can have true unity. Only those in Christ can demonstrate true humility. Only when Christ is in view can we love one another and exercise His humility as God has designed for us. Only when your spirit has been awakened can you stop living unto yourself and start living unto others. And so the question then remains, is your spirit awakened? Do you have the righteousness of Christ? Has the Word of God been implanted into your heart? And this is questions. these are questions that we must ask ourselves continually, even if we are believers. But for the unbeliever maybe here, you must know that one is saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You can't do it yourself. As we have seen, this great need we have for a Savior. Yet the Savior had to be both God and man. 
One who could obey perfectly. One who could live the perfect and sinless life in our place. And so listen to these words from the Gospel of John in chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And so for the unbeliever listening, believe in the Son in whom Paul has described to us this day. The pre-existent Son, co-equal with the Father, who was in supreme glory, yet veiled that glory, became man, suffered and died on our behalf. Yet, brothers and sisters, the good news is that it does not end there. Today, in verses 5-8, through eight, we looked at the humiliation of Christ. But next week, in verses 9-11, through 11, we will look at the exaltation of Christ. The Christ who is risen. And so this Christ who reigns, now reigns above every name. And so this is the Christ that, that we are to call to believe in. This is the Christ we are called to believe in. And so, brothers and sisters, today, after hearing this Christ, what we ought to do is to dwell upon this Christ that we have learned of. Dwell upon what it is He has done for us. Dwell upon what it, what it means for us. What both His active and passive obedience mean to us. That we might realize its significance in our lives. So that we might say, as J. Gresham Machen once said, who was a, a Presbyterian and a principal founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, his, his last known words were sent, uh, or his last recorded words were sent in the telegram to fellow Presbyterian John, uh, John Murray. And so we'll close with these words. Words, I hope, that after hearing about Christ's work and His humiliation, that we all could echo with Him. Listen to these words. His final words recorded before his untimely death. This is what he says. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have given to us the supreme example of all things in Christ Jesus our Savior. We thank You that You have revealed these things to us in Your Word through Your Apostle Paul. We cannot help but be saddened yet humble as we learn about what Christ has done. Saddened that we are the cause. We are the reason that He came down to suffer and die because of our sin. Yet so humbled that He loved us such that He did suffer and die, taking upon Himself the likeness of sinful flesh on our behalf so that we might have eternal life. So Father, we, we pray this day that You would press these words, press them against our hearts and in our minds, that we may dwell upon and think about these things quite often, especially on a day like today, on the Lord's Day, on the day in which we celebrate the very resurrection of our Lord and Savior. We thank You that You have sent Him that He, on His own accord, suffered such a great humiliation. Yet, Father, we thank You that all that the story does not end there, that yet He gave His life and yet He took it back up and now He reigns and sits at the right hand of the Father. And because of this, we have hope that we one day will reign in heaven with You, Lord.
And we thank you for this hope you have given us and for the assurance of that hope you have provided for us in Christ our Savior and in the guarantee given to us in the Holy Spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.